following program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, is brought to you by our Mind, Body, Health, and Politics team. That consists of our producer, Charlie Deist, our sound engineer, David Springer in Kansas City. By the way, Charlie Dice is in Oakland, California. Our social media person and programmer, Allison Kelly, also in Kansas City. And our editor, Florian Furen, who's in Germany. Together, we bring you this internet broadcast, and we also produce books, such as this one that just came out recently called Psychedelic Wisdom, which we hope you'll take a look at. We also would like you to go to our archive for Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Listen to some of our programs, which we hope you'll enjoy, and maybe subscribe and become part of our Mind, Body, Health, and Politics community. Join us, and welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. The mission of this program is to enhance physical and mental well-being and encourage community. And what I mean when I say encourage community is that I believe that human beings are basically friendly, tribal animals. And when we live together in small enough groups where we know each other by name or at least by face, we tend to be very cooperative. We like to hang out together. We collaborate and we do things together and we make life really pleasant. However, a small percentage of us are avaricious, greedy, dangerous predators. And if they had their way, they would turn us into subjects instead of the citizens that we are. So therefore, it's our job to be ever mindful, to stay awake and aware and protect our democracy and our republic. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Our guest today on Mind, Body, Health and Politics is Catherine Durkin Robinson, And she's going to be talking to us about something that is so new that I'm not even sure I know how to pronounce the word. So we're going to find out from Catherine, the word that I'm not sure I know how to pronounce, and welcome, Catherine, that I'm not sure I know how to pronounce. Is it Duella? It's Dula. It's Dula, D-O-U-L-A. So let's begin by your sharing with us. What is a doula, generally speaking? And then we're going to get to the particular kind of doula that you are and that you represent. Right. Well, that's a good question. So there are lots of, there are a few different kinds of doulas. Um, We are, it depends on if we're talking about birth doulas, then those doulas or midwives help people prepare for the very real work that goes into labor and delivery to bring a child into this world. And then we also have doulas who work at the end of life uh, with people to prepare for the very real work of dying. And that's what I do. The the, the work of dying. That's an interesting way of putting it. Please elaborate on what you mean when you say the very real work of dying. Well, when death is expected and somebody wants to prepare for it, a doula can support that. Every doula is different. We all come at this from different backgrounds with different strengths. Um, But generally speaking, a doula is there to walk with someone, walk them home and support them in whatever a good death looks like for them. 
So we get to know our clients, we talk to them, we find out what their goals are, how they want to live the rest of their lives, and how they want to die. And then we support that journey. So you're talking about two different kind of doulas for sure. Maybe there are others. Mm-hmm. You, you talk about a doula who's there either before or during or right after you give birth. And then you're talking about a doula at the other end of the continuum when we're about to leave. Right. Now, to begin with, let's let's do spend a little bit of time on the early doula, but then we're going to focus on the end of life doula. The, 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 when does one begin with an early doula? Like you're pregnant. Do you get one as soon as you get pregnant? Do you get one when you're about to have a baby? I mean, when does the doula, when do you bring that doula into your life? I would think, I mean, so I've never, so I've never worked with pregnant women, but I know pregnant women who have hired doulas. um, And I, I would think that like an end of life doula, the sooner Once you realize you're on that journey, the sooner you can get a doula in to support you, the better off you're going to be. So um, so I would say hopefully right when somebody knows they're pregnant and they kind of want to have a different birthing experience um, than the traditional experience, maybe of being medicated or in a hospital. um, It's better to get that doula on board early. Is a doula also a midwife? Sometimes those terms are used interchangeably, yes. Oh, so this person that you bring into your life as a doula is also going to help you give birth, which evidently then is going to take place in your home rather than in a hospital. Sometimes, yes, right. And then the doula stays with you after the baby gives uh, comes out? Yeah, she can. Um, she helps with breastfeeding. She helps kind of um, make sure that there's support in the home and that those new parents are supported. Yes. And I know I'm asking you something that's out of your specialty. It's sort of like asking a cardiologist, you know, about uh, orthopedic surgery because you're an end of life doula. So I appreciate your sharing some information with what you know. Uh, So let's let's just focus on your specialty. You told we know a little bit about the early uh, the early doula, the birthing doula. Yours end of life. Okay. So to begin with, does a doula go to a doula school? How does a doula become a doula? Well, there are lots of ways to get here. Um, There are programs in schools that are quite helpful. I went to the University of Vermont's end of life doula program. It was during the pandemic, so I wasn't required to relocate to Burlington, which was nice. Um, I could do it online. And I learned a lot. They trained me um, thoroughly to prepare for opening up my own practice and getting started. But I entered this with my own background. I think being a longtime volunteer for hospice, two different hospice organizations, that was also quite helpful in preparing me for this um, because they have extensive training when you become a volunteer with hospice. And then you can log up to 100 hours learning so much about end-of-life process, about grief, about everything that goes into the dying process. Um, and so I recommend that as well as a, you know, a great training to get started. So if, you, if you're thinking about becoming a doula, having hospice experience would be extremely helpful in addition to academic training. Yes, exactly. Okay. And at what stage... 
does a person come to you and say, I'd like you to be my doula, or I'd like to discuss with you the possibility of your being my end-of-life doula? When, when do we do that? That's a good question. Most of the people that have called me have received a diagnosis probably within a couple of weeks, and they could be anywhere from six months to a year. Um, in before uh, the doctor has usually given them about six months to a year of a diagnosis. Um, but I will say that I have heard from people who have never received a diagnosis or certainly haven't received one yet. And they call me because they want to reduce their fears about death. They want to learn about the dying process because they want to have a different relationship with death than maybe their parents did. Maybe they're caring for aging parents. Um, or maybe they want to live a life without fear. So I hear from people who have no diagnosis all the way on up to people who have maybe less than a week to live. So two different groups here. One group has gotten a diagnosis of something so serious that their prognosis is very limited. Their, their length of time that they're going to be with us is very limited. And the other group have not received a diagnosis, therefore they don't have a short prognosis in front of them, but they want to learn more. Right. And you're actually getting people of that second group as well who simply want to learn more. Are these people typically the children of people who are aged, or are they typically the aged people themselves? Sometimes it's a blend of both. Um, I have people who are going to be caring for their parents. It's scary to them. They want to they wanna do a good job. They want to support their family member in a way that honors them. They don't know how. So I hear from folks like that. I also hear from folks who are just curious. They want to try different ways of addressing this fear that so many have about end of life so that by learning about it and by um, talking about their fears, they can reduce those fears and live um, not only in the future, have a more joyful death, but live a more joyful life. I also hear from community organizations uh, throughout the city where I live, and they want me to come and do workshops, presentations, or classes, continuing education classes. And this is for a variety of different people. Some of these workshops and classes are specifically for people over the, over the age of 60, but then other times they're just for the community at large, people who might be interested in this topic. What I'm trying to do is normalize the conversation. So many people are afraid to talk about it or we're, maybe we're encouraged not to for lots of different reasons. And my job is to, in addition to letting people know that I'm here for end of life services and support, but also we can take a moment and have a conversation and make this normal and invite your family so that we can all kind of get on the same page and not let fear uh, ruin what is and can be a sacred, almost joyful event. Traditionally in this country, the topics that are considered prohibited are religion, sex, money, and politics. In other words, if you want to have a happy evening with sitting around with friends or family, you don't talk about religion, sex, money, and politics. It sounds like what you're saying is that another topic, perhaps not prohibited, but maybe avoided, is death and dying. Is that a topic that's very difficult for most families to deal with? Oh, yes. Very difficult. Um, and people are afraid. 
and the, the mystery around it and the taboo around talking about this or discussing it has led to a lot of fear. And those of us who live, who work in this space and help people, we're confronting our mortality on a daily basis. We tend to live with less fear, almost no fear. And it's because we're around it. It's because we talk about it. It's because we see it and we know how beautiful it can be. It, and we are encouraging that conversation so we can focus on the beauty of it and the awesomeness of it rather than what's so scary about it. Um, so we're in a sense, just trying to help people kind of become as um, aware of this part of all of our lives um, so that they can find the joy in it themselves or peace at the very least, find peace in it. In your words, you're attempting to normalize the conversation. Is that correct? Yeah. You said that these classes are, I don't know if you said open to people above 60, but something you mentioned something about people 60 years and older. Does that mean it's considered that when you turn 60, you're a candidate for end of life uh, education? Right. So a, a lot of the community organizations that ask me to speak are continuing education for retired folks. So I think that that's why um, there seems to be more of an interest there in um, all kinds of things related to end of life. So I think that's why those those programs tend to get in touch. But like I said, I'm hearing from a lot of groups that cater to younger people, too, especially people who aren't um, affiliated with a particular religion. So they're exploring different kinds of rituals, different kinds of um, ways to mark life cycle events. And the last one we do is the, is die. And so they want to find different ways to do that. And then obviously find different post-death ways to um, to bury their body, cremate their body, um, eco-friendly ways of doing that after death. So I'm finding that a lot of the younger generations are interested in this topic because they really do want to do things differently than previous generations. I, I'm going to propose that we play a game together. Uh, and the game is called DD, Doula for a Day. Okay. And I'm going to ask you to be my doula for a day. And the game is, I'm 83 years old. If people are a candidate at 60, certainly I'm a candidate to have a doula at 83. Mm -hmm. So I'm now, instead of being not just the host and you being the guest on Mind, Body, Health and Politics, I'm now an 83-year-old coming to Catherine Durkin Robinson, the doula, and saying, you know, can we talk about the possibility of me returning, you know, like you being my doula and, and what's it about and how do we, what do we do? What, how do we proceed here? Well, the first questions, that, the, the first set of questions that I ask my clients um, are, well, I start off by asking if they kind of understand what their diagnosis is and if they can help explain it to me. Um, okay, I'll do that. I'll tell you my diagnosis and, and I'll explain it to you. I was diagnosed with um, life-threatening metastatic melanoma of the nodular kind and with um, congestive heart failure. Okay. And I, the next question that I usually ask is, what are your goals for the rest of your life? What do you want to do? I want to uh, continue seeing patients. I want to continue doing my internet broadcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And I want to continue writing books. So those are my vocational goals. And my personal goals, I want to continue to spend time with my family and enjoy our time together. 
Okay. And, we, and then we, I and I, I have some hobbies. I want to continue with my hobbies. Okay, good. What um, have they given you a prognosis? Um, what is the trajectory of your um, condition or your illness? Have they given you that? Um, actually, they would. They they refused to do that uh, because um, they wanted to wait and see uh, what happened over time and 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 what happened with testing and with various procedures that that have been performed including some that i invented myself so that's the answer to your question do you have any fears i did a uh, pardon do you have any fears um well that's a good question um n- Yes, I, I do. I, I, the, the one fear I can identify is that I'm afraid that some of the medicines that they've given me will render me, uh, it, it will, it will give me an additional diagnosis of uh, erectile dysfunction, and I and and I'm I'm a, I'm afraid of that. Okay, you, you do you feel like you have a a, a good solid medical team supporting you? Yes, here? I do. I have several. I have a whole oncology dermatological team for the cancer, and then I have a whole cardiology team for the uh, cardiovascular condition. Good. Do you have um, both? Go ahead. No, please. Do you have like? Do you have palliative care physicians on this team at all? I don't believe any of these people uh, are palliative care specialists. How are you as far as pain is concerned? Discomfort. Um, I'm in daily pain. Uh, but not from these two uh, diagnoses. I'm in daily pain from something else. Okay. And are they able to address that at all? Um, the only way to address the kind of pain that I'm in would be to take pain medicine, which I won't do. Okay. Okay. Um, because that that would render me even less able to function in certain ways. Sure. Particularly, as, particularly as a clinical psychologist, because it's important to me to be in touch with with my senses in every possible way, and to take a medicine that mutes me, which is a pain medicine, would would to me would would make me a lesser clinician. Sure. Okay. Um, what are your thoughts about hospice? Something to keep away from as long as possible. Can you tell me why? Because it, because what I learned from interviewing someone uh, the other day, uh, uh, who's an expert on that, um, is that you go to hospice when you have a prognosis of six months or less. Well, you certainly could. Yeah, though most hospice organizations will will uh, take patients who have twelve months or less. Oh, I, I, oh, well, I'm learning something new here. Yeah, some some hospices will do that. Um, and I didn't mean, do, are you ready to call hospice? Um, oh. but I'm <laughs> curious to know, like, are your, what are your thoughts? Do you want to utilize hospice at some point when you're ready? I doubt it. Okay. How do you want to die? Uh, please elaborate on the question. I don't, uh, I don't follow what you mean. How, by what method or, or like where, or what do you where? mean by how? Where? Where? When? Yeah. Oh, I want to die in my home. Okay. And... Your medical team that you have that you said you're happy with, do they support that? Dying in my home? Mm-hmm. I've never discussed it with them. No. They they, they don't ask. They've never asked or, or considered that. Hmm. Okay. Well, if you were calling me, I would say, you know, I, w- I think I would 
after exploring all of these different thoughts and feelings you have about everything, I'd be curious to know what you want support with. Uh, that's what a doula does, right? A doula supports somebody at end of life. So what would you, how would you like me to support you? Um, well, it depends on my condition. If my condition is such that I'm able to function as I do, then the support I would like is for my wife. Because living with somebody who has a threatening diagnosis is frightening. And so she's living with fear of what might happen or is going to happen to me. So I think she could use the support of an expert in end of life. Do you have everything set up legally? Um, do you have advanced care directives, living wishes, living wills set up? I have I have a will, uh, and it's a comprehensive will, as best I know. Mm-hmm. But I don't have an advanced directive. Advanced directive is the document with regard to what to do if I get into certain conditions and That's whether right. to resuscitate me or not. Right. Yeah. You know, I, no, I haven't gotten around to filling that out because it's, I hate paperwork and I've got enough in my life. And here was that thing looked so lengthy every time. And then they say you can do it online and I go to do it online and I get daunted by it. Yeah. So maybe, maybe I could, maybe I could, maybe that's something I could use a doula for to help me fill the darn thing. Do you, do you help fill out that form? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we can do is we can go through advanced care directives and all the all that daunting paperwork together and kind of just take it step by step so it's not as daunting. Not only is that important paperwork to fill out, but then it's important to actually tell your loved ones, your support team, your care team, what you want. It's good to write it down and then make sure that there are copies available. We also wanna talk about it as well. And so that's the kind of three-pronged approach that we take with that, just to make sure that you have everything in place. A lot of times when you have all these things put in place and your loved ones know that they don't have to guess, they don't have to worry about that part of it, it reduces a lot of their fears and anxiety. So that would be one of the first things I would suggest that we go over. Now, I want to take a sidebar from Dr. Miller, the the, the patient, and Catherine Robinson, the end-of-life doula, Going back, we're going to take a sidebar, and I'll be the host again, and you're going to be the guest again on the program. So tell our listeners, please, what an advanced care directive is, because I know what it is, you know what it is, but they may not know, and it would be very helpful if you'd tell us. Yeah, I mean, basically what you said, it's putting your plans in place in case certain circumstances happen. Do you want to be kept alive by extraordinary measures? Do you want your feeding tube removed under certain circumstances? Um, these are all questions that you can find, like you said, all over the internet. Um, but depending on the state you live in, there might be certain requirements for a notary or a witness. Um, your doctor is going to want a copy of this. So is your future, like whoever you've decided is going to be maybe your healthcare surrogate, or it goes into even power of attorney. When you can no longer make these choices or these decisions, the person who is going to have to make them for you needs to know what you want. And it can be a wonderful gift that you give your loved one so that they don't have to guess. So many arguments and fights happen in families because they have no idea what their loved one wants 
and they're some of sometimes they're guessing and some folks disagree with other folks you can wipe all of that out by getting this paperwork done ahead of time and um, if you need some assistance with that a doula is able to help and then making copies making sure everybody that's important needs those copies and gets them and then also talk about it if you want food and drink stopped after a certain amount of time, you need to make sure your family is okay with that and that they're gonna abide by your wishes when the time comes. So it's good, I call them tender talks. And it's good sometimes to have a professional in the room to be able to mediate those conversations that can be quite difficult, sometimes awkward, sometimes painful. And so that's why it's important not only to get all that paperwork done, but to make sure that the people who are going to be taking care of you or who are going to be supporting you are on board. Thank you. So that's a good description. And you're making a strong case for all of us getting an advanced care directive. Did I get it correct? Right? That's right. That's right. Okay. So for all you listening, an advanced care directive. Okay. Now we're going to go back to the play acting. So we were talking about about the possible help for my wife of a doula in our interview, right? And okay, what next? Well, I think that's where we would start. I also think that if, you know, it's good to talk about just your familiarity with the dying process. Have you ever been around anybody that's died before, actively dying um, in your presence? Well, I've never, I, I've, I've, I've come close to dying twice, you know, very, very close um personally and um i i can't say i've gone through the process i've certainly you know friends of mine have died but it's not like i was with them every single day or even every week as they were going through the process uh it's more like um in one case i got a call from my best friend's wife and he went into the shower and didn't come out and he was he was not quite dead so i got on a plane he was in ohio and i by the time i got there he was still barely alive and i got to say goodbye so that's about as close i came recently a friend of mine uh had a stroke in a swimming pool and they took him home and he was dead before i could drive down and there, it was too late to say goodbye any way because he didn't recover from the stroke and so these it's more like this kind of situation where i get informed that something sudden has happened Um, Now, when I was very young, um, very young, 60 years ago, my best friend had a terminal disease and it was a very big experience and it's been a big experience in my life. He had glomerulonephritis and that was before the days of dialysis. It was in the beginning experimental stages of dialysis. So I did go through a daily, I w- we were actually, sh- he and his wife and myself and my wife were sharing a home. So we did go through discussions with him. And it, I was 21 years old in graduate school. He was 10 years older. And it was very impactful. Uh, and he handled it very, um, very matter of factly and just went through the processes. And when he heard about this experiment going on in Washington, D.C., we were living in Michigan at the time. Uh, with a dialysis, he went down to Washington and he underwent the the dialysis. They didn't even have a machine then. He had to rent an apartment that was two stories high so they could put the drip in the upper floor and drip it down to him by gravity feed in the lower floor. And at a certain point, he called and he said, you know, 
I always said that it was a, when it was beyond 50-50, I was going to leave. And it's gotten to the point where it's 60-40. In other words, 60-40 miserable, 60 miserable, 40, you know, bearable. And so he took a bunch of pills and, um, and, and, and set a precedent for me. And so I decided at that point in my life, when I was 21, that I would get a bunch of pills and carry them with me for the rest of my life so that if I ever got in a similar situation that he was in, I would also take the pills. Okay. And Do I have you- the pills to this day. Okay. Do you, um, how does your wife feel about the end for you? Is she worried? Is she at peace with it? Is she, will you need assistance with those pills? Is she willing to provide that assistance? I'd love to hear more about that dynamic. Well, I think based on this conversation and the other uh, end of life uh, interview I did uh, recently, I will be having these discussions more openly with my wife. What she's heard from me so far is that I don't like talking about death while I'm alive. And she is very interested in the topic of death and dying. And she herself worked for hospice for 10 years of her life. So she has experience and she's very comfortable. But until today and the other day, actually, it was just the other day I did the other interview, um, until these interviews, um, she's been living with a man who basically didn't want to talk about it. And why didn't you want to talk about it? Because I don't want to take the precious time of my life talking about my death. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. I think it's, it's, it's a given. I'm going to die. We all are. Mm-hmm. It's part of the developmental process. We get born, we live, and we die. I don't make a particular big deal about it, and it's going to happen. And so... What's there to talk about? I don't until until I meet a professional like yourself. I really don't even know what to talk about, other than the fact that yes, I'm going to die. I don't have a I don't have a sense of how to dialogue about it. Right? Yeah. I mean, I get that. It's um. It seems well. It's inevitable. Um. However, I think it's important to know that we have some control over not necessarily what happens to us, but certainly how we handle it. And for some people, especially as we get older, we want to die a certain kind of way. We don't want to die in the hospital. Maybe we don't want to die in um, a a kind of hospital bed where we're hooked up to machines. So many people feel that same way, like you. Over 80% of us want to die at home, but over 80% of us will die in the hospital. And unless we have these conversations and we put a plan in place, when you do that, you increase your odds that you'll have the kind of death you want. And since we only have one shot at this, it might be nice to put some planning into place so that you can have the kind of ending that you want. That's a very dramatic statistic that you just shared with me about 80% of us want to die at home and 80% die in the hospital. And that's, that's the best reason for planning I ever heard. Now, I'm going to switch the topic slightly. You are also involved in something that is of great interest to me, which is, and tell me if this is accurate, and that is you're involved in end-of-life utilizing psychedelics. Is that accurate? That is. Because that, that is something I'm very interested in. I was, very, I was influenced when I read that Aldous Huxley took LSD as he was dying. 
And I said to myself when I read that, that sounds like the way I'd like to go. That sounds like something very interesting. Right. What can you please, what can you share with me and our listeners about end of life and psychedelics? Well, so lots and lots of studies have come out from Stanford, from Johns Hopkins, and those studies continue today to show that people who take plant medicine reduce their fears of death, reduce reduce death anxiety, and come away with more beautiful feelings about the end of life. And so with those studies, people's interest have grown, right? So in this country, unfortunately, um, psychedelics or plant medicine isn't legal everywhere. There are places you can go that are legal, that are ayahuasca retreats, both in this country and outside. Now that's DMT. And those places are legal. Um, but for psilocybin, for example, that's becoming decriminalized in a lot of places. But overall, people are afraid. So people are afraid of death and people are afraid of doing something illegal or something that they don't know that much about. Right. So I have decided that, so there are lots of psychologists, therapists, ethical, moral therapists who risk their own private practice by providing plant medicine to their clients, to their patients, and work with them to integrate those experiences into their lives. So again, we're talking about reducing fear, reducing anxiety, so that they can have a more joyful death. That is one way to do it. So as a doula, I work with those therapists and those clients of mine who have those therapists, and I'm what we call a trip sitter. So a trip sitter is very much like a doula. We do not guide, we support. So I will sit with somebody for eight to 10 hours, make sure they're safe. So we wipe that fear away and they, they're safe. They're not going anywhere. And then they can do a deep dive to explore this trip that they're on and work with the therapist afterwards to integrate what they've learned into their daily life. So that's one part. As a doula, I offer trip sitting as one of my, my services. But then also I'm a death doula for uh, an organization called Diaspora Psychedelic Society that provides those kinds of retreats in Jamaica where psilocybin is legal. And so people who either, maybe they're a death doula and they want to incorporate psychedelics, they're hearing about it, they know that it can reduce fears for their clients, so they want to go and experience it themselves first, but they want to do it someplace where it's safe and legal. So they come to Jamaica and we work with them there. Or we have people who maybe they're exploring the last chapter of their lives. They haven't received a diagnosis necessarily, but they've heard about these promising studies coming out from these you know, revered institutions of learning, and they want to experience it for themselves, someplace where it's safe and legal. So we'll go there and we'll, again, integrate afterwards so that they can live with less fear. And then some people have a diagnosis, but they're not quite sick. They're not to the point where they're bedridden and they want to tackle this fear before they become bedridden. So again, they, these are just places where they can go. And in Jamaica, I'm available several times a year to sit with people, to talk about what they've learned, and do the other parts of my doula practice as well um, to reduce those fears and help people kind of work through them, which is almost miraculous to see. It's like maybe 20 years of therapy in a few hours 
And so to be able to watch people and support them as they're working through childhood trauma, or perhaps they have some regrets over things they've done. Um, there are all kinds of ways and reasons why we have fears at end of life. Sometimes just talking about them gets through them, but some other people need something stronger. And plant medicine holds such promise for folks that I think it's important for me as a doula to recognize that, to support them, and to offer it as part of my care package. And which of the uh, psychedelic plant medicines uh, do you sit for? So right now, um, I'm comfortable with DMT and with psilocybin. And when you say DMT, are you relating primarily to ayahuasca? Yes. Yeah, and, and psilocybin. Now, you're aware that there are places in the United States where those two plant medicines are legal. I believe Oakland, California, San Francisco just passed a law right. legalizing plants. Um, um, the state Colorado. of Oregon, pardon? Colorado, places in Colorado. Um, Denver, De the other city is Denver, Colorado, Oakland, California, San Francisco, and I believe the state of Oregon. Yeah, it's so exciting that more and more places are decriminalizing this and opening it up. Um, and yes, I actually, for my 50th birthday, I decided I wanted to uh, go to an ayahuasca retreat. And I found a, a beautiful retreat in Orlando, Florida, so where it's completely legal, safe. And uh, it provided just a wonderful awakening for me the weekend that I turned 50. So, yeah, I think it's exciting that there are all these places and all these options uh, available to people. Absolutely. My my daughter, uh, Evacheska DeAngelis, is in your profession, not as a doula, but as a guide. And uh, she's about to go to a place called the Amazon Temple in Peru and study for two months. Nice. and study the plant medicine. We're very excited about that. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose it's not as glamorous to come to San Francisco, although it's a beautiful city, it as is. Jamaica, but I would hope that you would pick some of these other cities and come and, and share uh, some of your your wisdom and knowledge and uh, and, and help other doulas form. And it, it, Do you think there might be a psychedelic doulas in in the in San Francisco or Oakland or Denver? Do you do you have like a network that you're familiar with, or how does that work? You know that's interesting. So I belong to the National End of Life Doula Alliance, which is all over this country. And yes, there are doulas, death doulas, in Northern California and San Francisco. Um, and I love San Francisco, by the way. I did a breathwork circle there that was amazing. Um, and I will go wherever I'm invited, wherever people want me to go. I'm happy to go and spread the word that we exist and that we're available to help support deaths everywhere they happen, which is everywhere. Um, but as far as um, like, I think that psychedelic doulas, I think that that's brand new. In fact, my classes that I teach through DPS, Diaspora Psychedelic Society, are the only ones of its kind that I know of right now. But I don't think that's going to stay that way. I think that there's a real interest in this exploration um, and to do it safely and to do it in a way that, you know, set and setting is so important to help people grow and learn. I mean, we can grow and learn up into the last few weeks of life. And um, and so I encourage it. Absolutely. The kind of uh, psychedelic doula services you've been sharing with us, which I very much appreciate, are all end of life, but not the very end of life. 
Do you or do you know of anyone who is using psychedelics for the very moments of transition in a way similar to what Aldous Huxley did? Not quite like that. Nope. Not right now, anyway. Um, It's pretty tricky in terms of the legality, isn't it? It is. You know, in the name of harm reduction, I can justify being a trip sitter because I don't provide the medicine. Um, I but I sit with them and make sure they're safe for somebody who's going to utilize it at end of life. um, I think that's a fascinating question. I wonder if there are medical teams, if there are therapists who, like I said, believe in this medicine so strongly that they jeopardize their own license to work with clients this way. I wonder if they would do that. Um, There's also groups like Compassion and Choices or Final Exit Network that help people, um, you know, Compassion and Choices works works with medical aid and dying laws. Like you mentioned in Oregon, California has one, um, Washington, D.C. I wonder how that plant medicine would play a part in that, especially as it becomes more accepted. And then the final exit network, they actually, uh, you know, propose laws that allow people to end their lives um, in a much different way than medical aid and dying is. So I would be curious to see how this changes in the next, I mean, the end of life realm is, is so different now than it was even 10 years ago. Um, I think it's exciting to see what changes are going to happen. But to answer your question, no, I don't know anybody who can do what Dr. Huxley wanted to do or and ended up doing. I think he took like 100 grams of LSD right as he was dying. Um, 100, micro, 100 micrograms. 100 micrograms. And I think, yeah. you know, most of my clients, honestly, they want to die consciously. You know, like how people want to give birth without drugs. They want to die without drugs, too. They want to really experience it. So I haven't heard anybody go the other way. Well, yes. It's, the question there would be, if you take a psychedelic, are you dying even more consciously? Good point. Not, not, not like a regular drug, which would have you die less consciously. Right. But I, rather than dying consciously, I prefer your language that you've used several times in this interview, which is dying joyfully. Yeah. And that, it, that is what I have found a, a big takeaway from our uh, interview today, which is yeah. the concept not just in my case of like dying peacefully and acceptingly, which I definitely have in me, but to die joyfully, to die with a celebration of having lived. That yeah. sounds like a that sounds like a great way to go. Because after all, being here in and of itself is the gift. It really is. When you think about the Google, you know, the a Google means the largest number that possibly there is. And there are a Google of sperm that never made it to an egg on this planet. Mm-hmm. And there are a Google of eggs that never received a sperm. And then there are you and me and the other 8 billion of us on this planet who were the lucky ones because a connection was made. And lo and behold, we got to be here. Yeah. And, and being here is the gift. Yeah. And so your concept of leaving being here with joy is a beautiful concept because it's a way of saying, I'm grateful for having had the opportunity to have lived. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's something that's within reach for everybody who wants it. And with the help of your profession, many more of us may be reached. 
I hope so. Thank you very much for this educational interview and for play acting with me. I thought that was a lot of fun and it gave a lot of information to our listeners. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Anytime. And thank you all, dear listeners, for being with us on today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health and Politics. I remind you to take a look at our website, look at the archives, maybe become a subscriber. Uh, Take a look at my latest book, if you will, Psychedelic Wisdom. And please come back again soon. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm 